I'm going to be very candid with you. We are living in a computer program reality. Welcome everyone to Simulation Nation, your portal to all things virtual. I'm your host, Johnny Android, and I'm here to keep you informed about all that's happening in the metaverse. We record our episodes live at Allspace every week, and you can join us for free, even if you don't have a VR headset. Yes, it's true. Just log into Allspace from your laptop or PC in our event and teleport in to offer your opinion, question, or whatever else. It's that easy, right, guys? These guys are getting in here for the first time. They've had a little <laughs> bit of trouble. Today, we are doing part two of our talk about the prophet of the metaverse, Philip K. Dick, who believed we were living in a simulation way back in 1977 when simulations weren't even a thing. Mind-bending books have led to movies such as Blade Runner, Minority Report, Total Recall, and many others here to help guide us through the career and legacy of this sultan of science fiction, or a bunch of dickheads. Yes, we have returning <laughs> dickheads, David Agardoff, who is, will be known today as Regal Gum, uh, Anthony Trevino, who, of course, is Palmer Eldridge, who you've seen on this stage a few times, as well as a new Uber dickhead, or Jay Tweed. <laughs> you know he's the Uberist dickhead because he has the most syllables in his name, which is something we may get into talking about yeah. Philip K. Dick style. Uh, they make up the Dickheads podcast uh, who discuss Philip K. Dick's life and works. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm emoji welcome. It's world class Dickheads. Yay! <laughs> hey, thanks for having us. And it really is the Dickheads podcast now that Langhorn's here. So super exciting <laughs> for us. It's complete. Yeah. Complete. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we're so excited. I, I, apparently, you guys haven't had a, 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 a all been together at the same time for a little while. <laughs> for so a while. That we could, right, we're glad we could be the ones that will bring you all together here. Um, before we go into everything, uh, let's have a little explanation for your names and why you chose them. Langhorn, let's start with you. Is that your real name? Uh, no, it is my my i guess it used to be a pen name but now that everything's online it's just uh my handle for everything so well it, it suits you well in the metaverse so i i like it well except for my um, video games video games i have uh many more names that i go under but got it We'll keep those top secret for now. Maybe, maybe yeah. by the end we'll give you a bunch of virtual cocktails and you'll let you'll let loose all your secrets <laughs> for now. Um, all right, Palmer, we know about you. You got yours from what? So I picked my name from my favorite Dick novel and probably one of my favorite. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I'd say villain, but I don't really see Palmer Eldridge as a villain. So he's definitely one of my favorite characters of all time. Got it. And uh, what about Regal Gum over here? I recognize that name. Uh, yeah, well, I originally, well, you know, uh, since AT took the uh, uh, the ultimate coolest uh, PKD name uh, first, oh, yeah, I did, and, and he knows that he did. Um, I just went for uh, uh, Rattle Gum as the um, subhuman everyman, Mister Taxpayer character of uh, Time Out of Joint, and uh, it was the first Phil K. Dick novel when I reached over the shelf and picked it up. Good name. <laughs> so that's the one that gave slide off ah. the shelf. Nice. Well, of course, you know, Palmer was on this Palmer was on this stage not too long ago. And we we talked about Time Out of Joint and its connection to the Truman Show. And we talked a lot about Regal Gum. Uh, and then we had an episode of you guys about a year ago uh, that we didn't do uh, uh, in the metaverse per se. We did it uh, on Zoom. Uh, and so we're really happy to have you here in avatar form. And so the question that is on everyone's mind is, what would Philip K. Dick think of the metaverse? Anthony? <laughs> Me? Me? Yeah. I think he'd be you. terrified of it. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think he'd, he'd have a hard time logging on, for sure. Yeah, I, okay. I think he would have a hard time logging on. I think he'd be afraid of it. And I think it would end up in at least several novels. Right. Yeah. He would believe at least one person in the virtual audience was from the FBI or maybe the Russian government trying to mine his ideas <laughs> on the afterlife. Oh, like hey, yeah, I, I really want to disagree, but I can't disagree because he would definitely hate <laughs> this. He would just be why? Because he would be paranoid that like 
the big brothers watching us and is you know old space is owned by microsoft so everything that we do is is being monitored by microsoft in here my headset that i'm wearing is uh owned by meta which is an oculus so you know mark zuckerberg is watching through my eyes and how i look <laughs> and who i'm talking to so every is that the kind of paranoia he would have in here or is there a yeah i mean we are, we are basically in inside the world that he feared the most was how corporations could take over and we don't have any privacy and you know and it's virtual so it's it's basically you're, you're everything you fear you're talking about a guy who's characters who were so broke they couldn't pay the five cents to get out of their front door so in in his vision of the future so i mean he he had a lot of really intense fears about the future and where things were going and in really nitty-gritty ways so you know i think he would i think he would have a hard time with it but mostly i think he'd have a hard time logging on and uh langhorn knows because whenever we've tried to uh interview some of these new wave and like old school science fiction authors it's always oh, yeah. just i mean our uh troubles getting norman spinrad on the show was kind of legendary and if you listen to the interview the first five minutes he wanted to rip our heads off um he calmed down a little bit and it was a great interview actually but it was uh just getting the technology working with uh school author like that was bad so when i think of what phil would think of this the first thing i think of is how much of a hard time he probably have logging on that's interesting so it's like that's he, was he a, wasn't a techno was he a technophobe would you say or you just think he was technologically illiterate no he was a technophobe ah oh, wow absolutely yeah and in lots of weird and curious ways that show up in the novels too because like technology is always kind of like either monetized or trying to get you and if, if you think about how many times he has like cars psychoanalyze it like like the actual cars being you know psychoanalyzing the people in the passenger seat or sentient or sentient and and like or, or um you know monitor you i mean uh palmer eldridge has the doctor smile briefcase for example things like that mm -hmm. i think he he was always like had a healthy skepticism of technology right that's interesting. That's why he was always writing these dystopian novels, I guess, because he was a, he was afraid of it all. It wasn't that he had a love affair with it; it was that he was afraid of it. That, that makes sense. Um, right, no, so no. What's that? Hmm? Go ahead, David. I was just going to say, I think his feelings towards things that are techy that attempt to imitate humanity have always made him uncomfortable. Mm. No, that's a yeah, that that's a good way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. These avatar formats, I think, would freak him out a little bit. Mm. Yeah, just oh, like Perky well, Pat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, kind of. Perky Pat. Exactly, and and I think if you look at the um, the Philip K. Dick robot, the AI that they made, I I always think about how uh, horrifying Phil would have would would have found. <laughs> he probably would have laughed. Interview the AI first. robot. I <laughs> we definitely need to try and do that. Um, but I, but I think he would have. He probably would have laughed at first, but then the longer he talked to it, and when it started spitting back things that came out of his letters and things that they programmed it with, I think he would be like, oh, <laughs> you know, I think he'd have a hard time. With it. Right. If yeah, if he saw if he saw Lambda and the way that they're talking with these 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 voice bots and they're becoming sentient and all that stuff, I keep thinking like, okay, well, this is just sort of we're in a cartoony form now, but wait eight years when this is photoreal or it's like yeah, PS5 yeah. level quality, it'll be pretty freaky. And I think that's when he would really be having paranoid attacks of panic attacks or something. But this is kind of like still baby, baby level, you know, graphics. But um, you just need to add a little 50% imagination to see where it'll be in 10 years. Right. Um, totally. And, and I, yeah. And I, I just recently listened to the Lamba engineer guy on a cast. And I was not very convinced. I still think it sounds programmed to me. But, um, you know, who, who am I to say I'm not the guy working with it, talking, conversing with it? So, you know, what do I know? Well, give it, give it a few years. It's on its way.
Um, <laughs> all right. So, so last time you guys were here, we went through basically the entire career of Philip K. Dick through the three phases of his career, essentially the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. And uh, since then, you guys have done another year's worth of studying his works and have a deeper, richer you know, understanding, hopefully, of him. And um, so I know you guys wanted to sort of come back and sort of talk a little bit more about what you've learned since last year. So um, why don't we start with you, David, and just tell us uh, what you've been up to and uh, you know how your feelings have changed about what you talked about a year ago. Well, one thing I would want to point people to, and and you know, Anthony and uh, what some of the things I think Scanner the Scanner Darkly episode, our last book episode. Uh, I'm really proud of that episode. I think it's 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 really good. We had a special guest, cyberpunk legend uh, John Shirley uh, was was a guest on that episode, and what I think was really great about that episode is really what Larry Anthony. And um, John brought to it more than thing is because I don't know any. I'm straight edge, and I don't know anything about drugs. So, um, and specifically, a lot of the personal experiences and being able to mirror that was something that uh, in the last year I was really proud of. I, I really, really, really love our Scanner Darkly episode. And I don't want to. I agree. <laughs> I, I recommend that one to everybody. So, yeah, and it's it's great that a lot. Oh, because there was a movie, right? So even if you haven't read the book, I think you'd get a lot out of it. And we kind of broke it up into two episodes because um, I went really nuts on the <laughs> research of the like timeline. Because it's a very autobiographical novel. And basically, there's a lot of details about the, um, the period in which it inspired it because Bill's... Um, stepfather uh, his wife's husband was taking had a journal and he kept very detailed notes about all the shit they were dealing with trying to get phil back on track so mm. it mirrors a lot of the events that happen in the novel and you can see real life events that inspired it and by the way those events culminated in a suicide a very serious suicide attempt and Phil basically getting his life back on track by having been invited to a science fiction convention in, in Vancouver. And, um, and I, I, you know, I don't want to go on for too long, but we should at some point in this conversation talk about, like, for me, this last year has been really eye-opening for just uh, kind of, I really got to, I, I visited Phil's papers at uh, Cal State Fullerton, able to start going through the manuscripts and, uh, and partially for a book that I'm searching that I'm writing about um, some of Phil's unpublished works. And I'm 20,000 words into that. And that was cool. But we have an upcoming episode, a video episode, um, hopefully sometime soon, uh, that is a friend of the podcast, David Gill, who's uh, most famous for doing the For Dickheads Only uh, blog for many years, a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, and a noted Dick scholar. And David Gill and I basically went all over Berkeley to every childhood home, every school he went to, record wow. stores. We, went, we basically did a, a tour of all the sites of uh, Philip K. Dick's haunts around Berkeley, and that was incredible and changed everything for me of how I viewed him as as a person. Because I got to see, for example, his mother's home and his first apartment, and and um, you know, it was just and um, and see, you know, this is this is a point of contention between me and David because I I personally don't care what a, a person's like, whatever the artist may be, you know, mm -hmm. what whatever they've done whatever they've, uh, where they live, like he's saying, where they, where they lived, you know, the unpublished stuff, the, the stuff behind the scenes. And mm -hmm. I, I, to me, that doesn't play into whether I like a person's art or not. And David is absolutely on the side of, you know, was this a good person? Did they, you know, did they have a hard time? Do I understand why they wrote the things they wrote? So to him, it's a it's a much deeper sort of experience. Whereas to me, I just want what's on the page. 
Right. You just want the books. Yeah. I think Anthony's more on yeah. your page too. I mean, it makes sense that, you know, you could, you could, you could sort of take the art uh, in face value. It's like, they always say, when you put a book out into the world, it no longer is yours. It's the audiences right. because they bring to it their own experiences and they make it their own. So they're, they're, they're two very valid, but very different ways, uh, perspectives to look at it. Anthony, would you, would you side with Leghorn on this? I'm somewhere in between. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I don't care as much to the, I don't care to the extent that David cares, um, and is, is invested. Uh, only because I'm again like Larry, I'm more interested in the stories that he's actually putting out. It's it's kind of like, am I going to watch the special features? Or am I not going to watch the special features? Right. Right. Um, yeah. Do yeah. I care enough to know the backstory? So if I like the book, I want to know about the process of writing that specific book a little bit less about his home life. Hmm. Although, <laughs> over over in the last years since we've last talked, boy, am I getting tired of listening to him gripe. Wait, who who's griping? Is it Philip K. Dick or is it David? Uh, it's oh. David. No, um, Phil. Uh, right. You, when you get into the latter half of his work, when you've read so many of his books in the way that we we have, you're gonna notice stuff, right? It, no matter what who the author is, there's just gonna be themes that pop up. But wait, this dude just—I'm so tired of his complaining about his his. His what life is he, his love life is that what he's complaining about yeah he love complains life. all the time about his love life writes the same right. three female characters in almost every book wasn't he married like four times or something like he, yeah. he five times he didn't have five. how many five times five uh, he yeah. never had five a shortage times. of never had a shortage of women around it's just that he couldn't uh it, he somehow make it work i guess we call it dick's divorcepedia on the show well, you know what's interesting? If you look at lines, he and, and you in the sense of how he writes characters, not that he wasn't trying to write deeper characters. It's just I don't think he was super good at it because, for example, if you look at the outline for Ubik, all the characters he would apply three real life people in his life that he was basing the characters off of. And a lot of times the women characters were almost always, uh, he had Cleo, his second wife, on the list almost every time. Uh, that he, you know, and, and then he'd say, uh, sorry for the sauce. Uh, he'd say, like, um, this is, he'll sometimes write, this person, this woman is like Cleo, but at work, not at home, which is interesting. You know, this is something that we talked about in our Scanner Darkly episode because credited uh, editor Judy Del Rey for helping teach him how to write women better <laughs> and uh, he does write women better as he goes but not not by leaps and bounds that's for sure she very right. specifically said in letters about Scanner Darkly that she taught him to write her characters and Donna in Scanner Darkly is definitely better character than say Mary Rittersdorf from Plains of the Alphane Moon. <laughs> yeah. Terrible, terrible character. Um, and, and, you know, and so you definitely see some, some, some progress there. And, um, and yeah, and, and, and these guys are right. I mean, I look, I just, you know, and it's not that Mary and Anthony aren't right. They're writers, but just because of the way I look at things, very interested in the writing process. I that just to me to no end. Whereas like Larry just wants wants to know what the final product is, and I like the process. I love researching the process. So, and this you know this comes down to the very first shitty movie the three of us all saw together when we came out of it, and I was making excuses <laughs> for the filmmakers because I'm like, hey, you know, I'm always trying to see things through the creator's eyes, whereas. You know, yeah, what was that called? What was that a Jupiter ascending or Jupiter, Jupiter rising? Ascending. Jupiter, uh, yeah, yeah, it was the Wachowski siblings, uh, right. movie and the space werewolf movie. Yeah, I've quit <laughs> defending that movie, by the way. Um, <laughs> you, you were defending uh, it, that's incredible. <laughs> hey, I will say, I will say the action scene over Chicago is very good. One scene, okay. that's it. Okay. Uh, but you think yeah, I'm very very interested in the process and that's why i like combing through the outlines that's why i like looking at the manuscripts 
seeing what's red penned and what's not. And, and like, that's very fascinating for me. Whereas, you know, and I, I get it. My, my co-hosts do not. So, <laughs> and I think, you know, I think that has to do with the three of us being, well, Larry and I are probably closer in terms of writing style in terms of our process. And I say process with air quotes. David's, yeah, right. very much a structure. <laughs> David's very much a structure and planning person. Whereas me and Larry, like I just kind of sit down and go for it. Mm. So, you know, I, I think yeah, that right. David is, is David will learn how to, you know, alter his own kind of process and structure it based off of like what he's learning from other writers. I feel like, whereas right. to be, to be frank, I don't really care how King wrote a thing. I'm just going to do my thing. But it, you know, but every once in a while, I'm interested. I'm more interested in the background process of of like filmmaking. But that's because of my my background. Yeah, right. Makes sense. I like you guys were saying though. It's like his his characters are the uh, sort of the less defined part of his worlds, and it's sort of the bigger premise, high premise concepts of these multiple realities and all that kind of stuff. And so how does, how does that, does that connect to his real life in some way? Or is it just a metaphor that he's just extrapolating on? Uh, and then it's the real people in his life that are dealing that are sort of it. it into well, that's character. a, I think that letter really, really, I mean, tells it all about how he feels about characters that they're just explain what objects, the is they're, they're props. Well, you explain it, you know, it <laughs> way better than I do. You explain okay, what so it is and all. Science, there's a science fiction writer who just passed away recently, actually, Ron Goulart. And uh, he's one of the few writers that Philip K. Dick wrote a blurb for, actually. Um, and he's a San Francisco-based science fiction writer who grew up in Berkeley in the same neighborhood as Phil, but a generation younger. And sometime around 1965, he called up Phil and said, hey, I'd really like to pick your brain about your process. And Phil told him that his phone was bugged and he didn't want to talk on the phone. <laughs> then told him when he's like, "Well, why don't we get together for dinner?" And then he, and then funnily enough, he told him that his car only took him to a psychiatrist, which is very funny, <laughs> and uh, only got him as far as a psychiatrist. He ended up writing Ron Goulart a five-page letter breaking down his formula. We eventually I, I his formula for I, writing a novel. An entire novel, right? We want to do a whole episode about it eventually. And I just spent the last week, um, part of the process of my book, uh, breaking down that letter to an insane degree where I was charted, I charted 20 of the novels versus wow. the, the letter. So um, I know the letter very well at this point. Um, and basically what he does is he breaks down how he introduces characters, how he introduces uh, problems, the fuse points um, and just like levels. There's a five. There's five steps that he basically lays out, and and as quickly as I can do it is chapter one is like the everyman character. Chapter two is the government official or somebody who works for somebody powerful. Chapter three is where he kind of starts to meld the two stories together and introduces the the problems that they're going to face. And he always has a world-sized problem and an individually-sized problem. For example, in Planet of the Alphane Moon, it's Chuck Ritterdorf's personal problem is his... It's usually a divorce, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> or some kind of marriage It's usually marriage a, female, a, a female problem, yeah. Right. Or losing a job, like a Galactic Pot Healer, the main character peels pots and there's nobody needs ceramic pots fixed. Right. And then there's a, this world size problem. So and then the next part of the formula is that there's a fuse point where the problems come together in the third act. And then it, and according to him, it ends on a humane, every novel ends with kind of humane note is what he said, like some kind of humane act or note, which is really funny. You know, I love that. Humane. I love that he puts there's the, there's a coda in there. And but his codas tend to be like 30 to 60 pages. So they're <laughs> amazingly right. long. And what's funny is, is that his, uh, when you look, if you try to chart, I charted all the, the humane acts and like my favorite one was the humane act of a maze of death is the guy choosing to become a cactus, <laughs> right? The most humane thing that happens at the end of that book is this guy's like, I'm just going to, by the way, in simulation. So as it relates to simulation nation, I'll, uh, 
of all the simulation novels, I think A Maze of Death is the one that I think people would have the most excited about as far as a simulation story. And in the end of the story, the humane act is that the character is like, you know what? I'm going to live in the simulation as a cactus, like in the sun mm. on a beautiful planet. And he's like, that's oh. going to be awesome. Boy, so that one made Anthony cactus. happy. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, was, I, I think Anthony liked Maze of Death, right? I like the lactic pot healer. Yeah, but you did not like Maze of Death, as I recall. Uh, Lactic pot healer is hilarious. But remember, we are fans. We we are big time fans of Philip K. Dick. So it's weird to say that we don't like things, but we we tend to, you know, say what we feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm curious though about this this letter. It was just I I read the letter as well. It's, It's super fascinating. I mean. You know, yeah, you can back, get it, but people want to. Let me just tell you real quick. If people want to read the letter, it's on David Gill's blog for Dickheads Only. Search novel formula for Dickheads Only. You'll find it. It's it's there, and you can read it. Oh. Right, and, go ahead, Johnny. And, no, and so going back through his works, you found twenty examples of this. Like he actually. And it's so interesting that like you guys have been studying all of his novels, but you could you didn't crack the code in the same way that he had laid it out. So it's kind of interesting. Like you could someone could have a formula. Well, we but did. We just didn't. Didn't well, word we, it in that way. We've talked. Yeah, about we we all these things. We didn't. Oh, okay. We've never. Uh, we've never voiced it as uh, sort of his process. Uh, we we voiced it letter. as like his 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 flaw, especially Anthony and mm-hmm. I over the the course of these. Uh, uh, of these books that we've read, these novels that we've read, we've said, you know, why are we seeing the same character? Why are we seeing this mm-hmm. other same character? And what mm-hmm. it turns out to be is that PKD had an idea that he would have these same characters doing these same sort of things with the same results. And that was his process. His, mm-hmm. his formula was to never, he, I've always said he doesn't care about characters. Like right. he just has these stock characters that he uses every novel. Uh, well, almost. Obviously, it's not every novel, but um, it doesn't. It doesn't excite me because I like diverse wow. characters. I like difference. I like uh, seeing things that I can't see in myself. You know that sort of thing. But uh, well, you know, we've been reading the same character through thir- right. what thirty-five books. So it's. Um, well, we we've figured out the formula. We just haven't said it's a formula. We just didn't have the letter to show us how obvious it was. <laughs> yeah. If you're, going to, if you're if you're going to write three novels a year, which he did at some point, you're going to have to have a formula. Right? Do you think Anthony that it had to do with the fact that he needed to pay rent and he need and writing science fiction <laughs> didn't pay that much, and so he needed to constantly be churning out these novels, and so he would use a shorthand formula in order to just dive into a new idea. Do you think that was part of it? Yeah, I think so. I think that's what a lot of writers who in the past that seemed like a viable option where you could at least make ends meet to an extent as a full-time writer. Yeah, I mean, look at all the early pulp stuff. Just cranking mm-hmm. those out. And yeah. then they're getting paid by the well, word that, count. So yeah, I think I think having a shorthand formula was probably helpful. Yeah. Hmm. And his most prolific period was December 1963 to April 1964, he wrote novels and one page outline that he sold between December and April. Yeah, that was six novels. I think it was six or so it wasn't five novels or something like that. In a six month period. Yeah. It's 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 nuts because um, I, I wrote about that because uh, I have a chapter about the Zap Gun outline in my in the book I'm working on. So in that period, like it, he was just out of his word. And by the way, he was leaving <laughs> um, wife number three during that period. So he wasn't even living in the same place. He was back and forth between house with Anne and mother's house in Berkeley. So, he was like packing up Which a typewriter. He left wife number forth. two. He left he left wife number two to get with wife number three. Wife wow. number two is the one that he had a lot of regrets about. 
And that's what the, uh, the novel confessions of a crap artist is entirely about is that, Mm. is that transition from one wife to the other Mm. and the fallout from that. Right. Before we jump on past the structure, the one other thing I'm curious about is like, looking back, are you able to see when he was developing this formula? Could you see, Oh, this is where he took this piece and kept that going. And this is where he got this piece. Or was it like really from the beginning that he had this formula? Let me just say this about the formula. Just real quick is he does flip it. It's not, it's not one-to-one every time. Sometimes he would formula around and he'd introduce the chapter two character first. And sometimes he'd push things further back, but keep in mind also didn't always write from outlines. So sometimes like man in the high castle and scanner darkly are both novels that were not written from outlines. I think that's being kind to say that he didn't always write from outlines. I mean, he, yeah. he usually did not write from outlines. He might have even had and an outline, didn't use it. So, in Scanner Darkly is an example where he follows the formula pretty goddamn close with absolutely no intention of doing it. It's, he just started writing. If you factor in, for example, that the everyman character of Charles Frack, who's freaking out about the bugs in the first chapter and the second chapter, is the Lions Club scene, it's like right out of the formula. But he claims. He wrote that. Just he just sat down and started writing. So. But uh, so, yeah. definitely in his uh, his older books, he doesn't he doesn't use that formula. You you don't see it in uh, World Jones made at least the first three or four novels. You you definitely don't see that uh, the that uh, pattern. But I when it when it starts who getting who Jake is the first one that follows the formula. I don't think it even follow, I don't think it follows the formula, but it's certainly like getting there. I think the first time he follows the formula is in um, uh, Time Out of Joint, right? Like perfectly. I'm uh, going through the books last week. I would definitely say it was World Jones Made. Not World Jones Made, uh, Manu J. Sorry. <laughs> World Jones Made is a mess because he's all Those over are the place. Those are both in the 50s, so though. Yeah. in his first yeah. period so in his first period he developed it and you're saying that in Scanner darkly which is his third period he was still doing the formula so that's pretty incredible um i don't think intentionally incredible. well that was just it became his style so yeah right. Right, right right um yeah so so i guess uh you know uh, if we're going to talk about, um, you know, we we talked a lot last time about his whole career, so we'll sort of stay away from that. But when did you think was the peak of his popularity? You know, he never really experienced the fame in his life. He died right before the premiere of the first Blade Runner. But when would you say he was the most popular in the literary circles? Well, after his death. That's a tough sure. one. Yeah, I mean, that's basically, you know, he, he definitely had a lot of fame. <laughs> He acquired a lot of fame when he got the Hugo um, for uh, whatever that book is called. But uh, Man in a High, in a high, high Castle. Castle. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the 70s, he started to get a lot more fans with Scanner Darkly and stuff like that. And he was just reaching the peak of his fame when he, he died. So I mean, it's a, kind of a, a sad story to see just when he was he was truly making it you know he he, you know what's really sad is that his his best-selling book in his lifetime the dosi do solar lottery and big jump with lee bracket his very first book was the one that sold the most units and that's actually because of the popularity of lee bracket wait he wrote a book with lee bracket no 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 no. uh the dosi do is they have two books that are, are published together uh, sort of side by side, but take an established and, uh, author and put him with a new one. Yeah, oh, I see. Interesting. So his biggest success yeah. was because he was the second bill on a Mia Bracket uh, headliner. Yeah. <laughs> wow! And by the way, Pretty that much. book's a big jump is great. It's a really great novel too. So and we've done an episode about that one. Right. We did, and um, yeah, and it's. Unfortunately, that's the one that sold the most units while he was alive. Right. Uh, well, remember, so... um... Go ahead. 
You there, David? His, his raggle. Oh, <laughs> raggle. Can we lose raggle. Uh, I think I'm here. <laughs> okay. Betsy Wolheim. Uh, Betsy Wolheim. Uh, we had Betsy Wolheim on, and her father, Don Wolheim, was was. Um, uh, he was responsible for the dosy dough, right? Like that was his. He, he his edited idea. the dosy doughs. Betsy Wilhelm said that anytime she talked about Philip K. Dick with her father, he would say that he was a brilliant writer, but the least commercially viable author ever known. <laughs> mm. and Which might have been, might have been true for the time, but it's definitely yeah, it's not true, true now. True now. True now, no. Yeah. Yeah, maybe he's just ahead of his time and we can relate to what he was thinking now, but it, it didn't make as much sense back then like we said in the intro where in 1977 he's saying we're living in a simulation people would probably like what's a simulation like it, yeah, it exactly. wouldn't even be a part of the lexicon in the same way so there's the almost uh, it's not the visceral feeling like oh yeah he might be right like they wouldn't have had that in 1977 so he, how what, what about his life i'm uh, one curious it, like what about his life made him think so far into the future was it just his imagination and that's the way it went or were there other clues as to why he why he thought the way he did? I think it was a, a, a lot of um, a lot of problems, mental problems mm-hmm. that really helped him see the future. Right. Like and, and bad relationships, especially with his mom and his guilt over his sister and, uh, you know, the agoraphobia and the uh, inability to stop lying and, you know. Just a, a number of things that, that as he, he points out in his interviews, and he says a lot of times that he could not physically do the things that normal people could do. And it wasn't because he wasn't physically able. It's because he was mentally not able to do those things. So it's, it's a very interesting um, point of view. Like you, you see this in, in people like Nikola Tesla, who was obviously brilliant, but couldn't eat a meal if the napkins were wrong. Mm. So, you know, and ended his life in a hotel being in love with a pigeon. So it's, you know, the bizarre elements that we we perceive as bizarre. uh, I don't know. It it makes people see the future. I don't understand it myself, but that's what it looks like to me. Right. just think he was his brain operated on a, a different level he a lot of times thought he was living in other realities and you know maybe he was i don't know uh, but he just saw things differently and that was well david and you, you have a great it, you have a great theory about um how he did a lot of his writing as not um as not writing the future but writing alternate history from a future perspective. So, and that's like one the, of the things that. Yeah, go for it. So what people get wrong about Man in the High Castle is it's not science fiction in a traditional sense, but it's science fiction in that he saw this other world. And by the way, it's, you know, one of the things in the High Castle is that book is just basically about how nothing is real. And um, a lot of people miss that that point of that book. And I, and I think would have gotten along with. I, think you, I feel like you would have gotten along with George Carlin back then, who's always saying like, "Man, is controlling <laughs> yeah. us. Our brains are being, you know, siphoned into this." You know, he, he there was there was a little bit of that back then with these sort of iconoclasts, but not not as many as as it's, it's sort of more mainstream now. These kind of ideas. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think my favorite example of him telling alternate history is when he talks about in in um, Blow My Tears is when he talks about the riots at Berkeley and and um, you know the universities versus the governments and, and like how there's this entire depth of history that he writes about by the way that didn't didn't happen but but he writes it like it's absolutely. A reality so it it does Consider like david says it appears now it appears like that's the alternate history that he's writing not 
not that he's trying to say it was it alternately happened in this world, but it alternately alternately happened in an entirely different Earth on an entirely different Earth in, in an entirely different universe. I, I I think that's pretty brilliant myself. But and and if nothing Park else, it's having riots right now in Berkeley. You know, over like the, the the clearing of People's Park in the last like two weeks. So, you know, <laughs> it might come true after all. <laughs> uh, if if nothing yeah. else, as a as as a creative device to free your mind from the constraints of the reality that you live in, even just if it's a creative device, like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself over here and look at me from an alien perspective. It's kind of like then I'll grok sort of humanity as it is now because <laughs> I'll see it from like that other other perspective that's i mean it's a pretty brilliant um way i don't think that maybe that was his strategy or that was his conscious choice but it is a great way to be creative for sure yeah and knock yourself out of the reality you're in we all sort of get into these doldrums and you follow your pattern every day and you you know break free somehow um yeah interesting flow flow is a, a great great novel yeah, and that so might have been some of the high. It's the right. it's the only one Not I've given cross. five stars, so or five okay, whatever well, I, was, I gave it. I was going to ask. We should do a little lighting round here, where you tell me and, and Langhorn. We never got your uh, opinions on these things last time, so uh, let's just start. Yeah, favorite book, Langhorn. Which one was it? Uh, Flow my tears, as uh, the policeman said, is uh, so far my favorite. But I have. Um, read the timothy uh what is the the timothy archer one i've read that one before but i read it a long time ago yeah the transmigration of timothy arthur and back in the in the early 90s early to mid 90s that was my favorite so mm. we'll have to see but so far it's definitely flow my tears the policeman said uh, I I love that one as well. And Anthony, yours is yours was Palmer Palmer Eldritch. I'm imagining it's staying the same. It, it is, but a Scanner Darkly is pretty close to pretty close up there. That one is great. Got it. Got it. And then and I think Anthony, you, you have Anthony has, I think, a, a real strong connection to Scanner Darkly too. Um, and I, you know, I really appreciated his his take on. Uh, it's 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 a it's a growing up around a lot of drug culture. It's it's a very relatable novel. I think I think that's what me and John Shirley bonded on in the episode that we both were understanding <laughs> the setting of that book from two different perspectives. Yeah, me too, you little bastard. It. Yeah, I know, but you're here right now. <laughs> you and I talk about it all the time. Larry and I are that's like true. two versions of the same person. He's just older, <laughs> grouchier. Throughout year, yeah, but we'll better say, better dressed in his avatar. Where lottery um, is, um, <laughs> why is because it's not a bathrobe and nothing else. <laughs> hey, this is what I wear nowadays. <laughs> nice. Well, lottery is also a very good book. Loungewear of the metaverse. Um. So, uh, <laughs> Anthony, what? Or sorry, uh, I mean, Regal. Uh, what? What was your favorite book? Is it still the same? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. Larry or uh, Anthony and I agree on Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. Although I will say that in the last year, I've had to do a lot of deep diving in the books and getting like real nitty gritty. And there's, you know, read a book. It's one thing to see like like oh this is great, but when you like pick apart a book, uh, like really intense level, what where you're you're writing about things on a really deep down level. You see things you didn't see before. And mm -hmm. I will say that well, Galactic Popular is freaking hilarious. And looking back at Galactic Popular, I, I loved it a lot more the second time. So Galactic Popular is quickly rising in my popularity. But the, mm -hmm. when I got down to the nitty gritty and studying, especially when we have a 40th anniversary live event episode for Blade Runner, I wrote two or three different articles based on Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And it's, it would be kind of corny to pick the one that inspired Blade Runner. However, mm -hmm. the metatextual 
animal rights themes and philosophical aspects of Do Androids Dream is something that I don't think you get all the levels when you just read it as a fun book. Like when you study it, it's like super way more brilliant than, than you realize. And <laughs> that, that happens when you look at a lot of these novels, Man in the High Castle, Scanner Darkly, mm. Three Stigmata. You go back and you look at them and you really study them on a really intense level when you're pulling out the highlighter and writing notes and writing articles. You, you just see things you don't see. And, and yeah, and Three Stigmata is the one that I think has so much about religion and drugs and the cosmos and simulation. And it's just, it's got everything. It's, it's fucking incredible. I love Three Stigmata. Right. So then what, uh, what, what would make the best adaptation? It hasn't been adapted yet. Look, not necessarily your favorite, but what would be make the best adaptation? Solar lottery. I think Anthony should take that. Solar lottery. Yeah. Why, why, why solar lottery? Because we get all these, these. So often we adapt a dick book at, doesn't have a ton of action and we give it all this action right and we kind of miss the point of the story Um, (laughs) oh wait what what just happened larry we even come back okay Okay. i'm back i'm back i'm back um okay but solar (laughs) lottery (laughs) solar lottery all the action's there oh right you could do a killer sci-fi action movie with solar lottery Hmm. And obviously, you know, Three Stigmata would be great. What's the what's and, the uh, what's the so, log line? Like, what's the one line premise for Solar Lottery? Oh man, that's hard, David. Solar, yeah, Solar Lottery is basically about a society where the president is chosen by a random selection, and then once the president is selected, they get put through like a Running Man style reality show where they're where assassins try to kill them in order to prove that they're worthy of being selected for president is, wow. is uh, i mean that's that's not really one line though <laughs> yeah so that's, that, that's, that's the best i can do but yeah it would be yeah it's a crazy concept. i would say i would uh, say it's who doesn't want to see trump in the running man <laughs> right it's really uh, cool. So you get like precogs that put their personality into simulacrums, um, like assassins that go that go after um, the the president elect. It's it's killer. I love solo lottery. Yeah, it was it was really good. Wow, it's his yeah, first so novel, cool. and he was kind of going for it. Um, first published one. I mean, he had written five before he wrote Solo Lottery, but it's the first one published. And uh, it's um, interesting. It's a, a great upbringing. He believes with Solar Lottery that he was doing a um, A.E. Von Vogt pastiche based on classic novel, the 40s, Players of Null A. But let me tell you, Solar Lottery is a lot better than Players of Null A. Holds up much better. Yeah. Right. Although I recommend people read it just to see what, what the hell was the state of the art science fiction in 1946. Uh, Can hear Larry yeah, unscrewing right. the cap of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is when the good stuff comes out. All right. Um, all right. So I always feel like the Philip K. Dick adaptations are nothing like the book. Even like Blade Runner is not totally anything like the book. Total Recall. No, not at all. Uh, he was. He was never imagining Skinner Darkly is moving. Skinner Darkly. That's so that the exception. Be, my question is, yeah, my, my question was most faithful adaptation. So Skinner Darkly. But there there is also uh, Confessions of a Crap Artist, uh, which is which is very accurate to the to the novel. I know it's not a very, it, yeah yeah the movie is very uh, accurate to the it's novel. A French adaptation. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Interesting. And plus, it's nice and short. It's only 70 minutes, so 78, technically. A couple of, a couple of those uh, Philip K. Dick Electric Dreams episodes are pretty pretty darn faithful, too. I was going to say Screamers is pretty is pretty faithful. The most Tone-wise, definitely, yeah. Oh, man, I would love to 
I'd love to see them remake Second Variety with a budget. I like Screamers, but like with the right director and a budget, that would be a great adaptation. Right. Second Variety is one of the best things. Uh, that's the novella that inspired Screamers. Second Variety is one of the yeah. best. Again, it's the only short story I've given five stars or five okay. somethings. And what's the one-liner for a second variety? Oh. I'm going to take that one. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna let Anthony do that. I think one. Anthony should do that one. Yeah. Okay. I'm not, I am not the pitch man for this group. David, take it away. <laughs> uh, second variety is like a post-apocalyptic war. It's, it's, in, it's in the greatest... 20th century military science fiction collection. Um, it's considered a classic military sci-fi, and and it's about um, robotic assassin drones who uh, copy uh, children in order to infiltrate wow. people. It's it's really it's really good. It's brutal and and the most terrifying one of the most terrifying things he's written besides maybe through Stigmata. Which, by the way, Three Stigmata I just saw was on a list of the 100 greatest horror novels. Um, uh, some list recently. And, um, and the thing with Three Stigmata is it's absolutely a horror novel as much as it is a pulpy sci-fi anti-drug religion. I mean, it's it, that's one of the things that makes it a masterpiece. Okay. Um, Wait, did right, we so talk about that, uh, which one we want adapted yet? Did I miss that part? What did I miss when no I was going? Which, yeah, I think you did. Miss <laughs> yeah, that what one. do you oh, want to adapt, yeah. uh, Larry? Which one? I, well, it's already one? it's already in the works, but uh, I always said Vulcan's Hammer was, first of all, not the worst PKD out there, and second of all, oh, is already a, already a movie. It just needs to be made. I mean, you yeah. mean it's three a movie. three evil evil robots that control everything and a bunch of kind of fbi agents that are trying to contain everything else i mean it's fantastic hmm. yeah yeah and, and i know you guys were, would make a great miniseries too no you were talking that his life is being adapted into two separate movies or they're at least attempting to um, yeah they're in the works definitely yeah, do you what are the two what are the directions they're taking both of those? So, uh there's which Jane. I think will happen. <laughs> there's will happen. Jane. You don't think either? Which is uh uh Alfonso Coran and um what's her face? Nicole um, Theron. Yeah, Charlize Theron. Charlize Theron. Who are who are both producing this project and um it's supposed to be a a biopic of pkd through the eyes of a sister that died so i think the premise is that mm. she didn't die because he was born a twin she died six weeks later etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. but uh he always held guilt for that but if she didn't die i think that's what this story is and about. she haunted his whole life yeah. but i bet you though if i was to take a guess at that concept and if i was going to do a, a a biopic on philip kd i would do it like a, it's a mind-bending, reality-altering thing where you don't know what's real and what's not real. And so, like, is, is she a real person? Is she an apparition? Right? That would be the play. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so, looking at it from his eyes, but he's like a, a double in another reality, maybe not real to our reality. I like maybe his twin lived in. You know, I would do it something like that. I mean, I'd imagine if Alfonso Cuarón's behind it, it's got to be something cool like that. Yeah, he's pretty brilliant. So. <laughs> And that's why that one will go. And it also has the um, support of Isa Hackett, his daughter, who runs Electric. Yeah, she is also she is also producing it. Or her so that production one, company. That one I believe will happen. The other one I think is about as likely as as you know me going into orbit anytime soon. Um, and that's and that one's a that tried, one's a pretty straight uh, biopic about the FBI. Is the whole when he thought the FBI blew up his safe, which I believe he well, himself. it's a, it's based yeah. on the uh, on that that uh, almost real, real or yeah. yeah, only apparently real 
and the uh, the author of that. that is supposed to be involved in that project. So it's still in a very basic form. Yeah, he he died. That guy did he? So he's not involved. Yeah, well, yeah. that would be really interesting if he was involved. The other well, he was supposedly involved for a long time, but not. Yeah, he, I guess not so much anymore. Tried to develop a project based on it when he was alive, but yeah. And and that's but it's still what, that's it still hangs that, out on IMDb, but you know, as a project that's, why that's I also active, think it will not happen. That's why I think it will not happen. Um, because of IMDb, that, because because <laughs> Paul Williams is dead, and he was trying to get get it made when he was alive, and it never happened. And I don't think that the story of the FBI break in, like when you get down to it, it doesn't scream movie to me. Or at least they're on an Alfonso Corazon doing a mind bending story. Corazon. Whatever. Anyway. Oh, Quaron. You're saying Corazon. You're Quaron. saying Corazon. It's Quaron. 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 Oh, there's also a rolled R in there somewhere, but uh, I'm sticking to the American. I, okay. That one I think will get made. But um, the other one, like, announce it every couple of years and say it's going forward. And one, at one point, even Paul Giamatti was attached to Phil K. Dick. And because he's a huge dickhead, but mm. it, 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 it keeps never happening. So I, I will believe it when I see it. Right. Stranger oh, things okay, have well, happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's the future of adaptations for Phil K. Dick. What's the future for you guys, the dickheads? There hasn't been a, uh, an episode with all of you together for a while. Uh, but odd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so i think that's a i think that's on me <laughs> okay because there are there are plenty of of things in the vault that i need to get around to but it's been a pretty strange summer uh i i haven't been alone in my house for the past three months we've had visitors from out of town pretty much consistently and then there was covid and et cetera, et cetera. It's all excuses. But um, uh, that whole three I, hours, Larry and I helped his mom outline her book. It's pretty stupid. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do have plans. Um, and I'm, I'm also trying to, you know, this to me is also a learning process. I'm trying to learn how to edit, how to do effects, how to do all these things after losing my career as a stagehand. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to learn a new trade and I, I want to do things that are different and challenging to me. So there's a lot of things that I want to do with the next couple of episodes that I haven't done before. Uh, and that includes the tour and the, uh, the, um, film versus novel, uh, of, uh, mm. scanner darkly, Inner. Mm. which is already recorded. Yeah. We've, we've, uh, we've recorded that episode, uh, I mean, all the material is there for these things. I just need to be better at my job. <laughs> anybody who wants will... to tweet at Larry and and yeah, yeah if any if there's that. anybody out there that is a an editor and would like to help out, I mean, I'm I'm all for getting that help. You're talking about a video um, editor? That's what you're looking for? Yeah, video cool. video editor. I don't think the tour would work as audio only. (laughs) No, we well we did an audio supplement to it. um, Right, very poorly, but that that will also come out. (laughs) Well, we were both wearing masks uh, when we recorded it, (laughs) and in weird space. Uh, And what we did was after we and going to all the places, we sat down and then just kind of went over all of it because what we want to do when we release the video have it so if anyone out there wants to go follow like we did go to all these places they can use the video as a guidepost or and then they can listen to the audio version in their headphones while they go to each location um, Mm. as like kind of a tour guide so like the idea is that you can listen to us talk about it um step by step and you can just pause it and like okay now i'm here at this place and then you can hear uh, mm. talk about and um some of the cool places that we went to, and one of the things that's really cool about berkeley trip 
and it was really eye-opening is that a lot of people don't realize that Phil K. Dick and Ursula K. Le Guin graduated in the same class right. at Berkeley High in 1947. Right. Really, when you go to their two, when you go to her house, which is like this huge, like expensive, amazingly like fancy house in the Berkeley Hills where she grew up, you go mm. to the like six different houses that Phil lived in with his mom and various locations around Berkeley, but mostly downtown. You get a really, for me, what, what going on the tour did was give me a sense of his life in a way that it like put, you know, it, it put a lot on the map for me. And one of the cool things, like went to his first apartment, which it's funny because I, and if you read his biography, he talks about when he moved out to his first apartment, what a monumental thing it was that he moved away from his mom and he got away from his mom and he moved out. And it was such a huge deal. And it's literally a block and a half away. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. And a pretty and, nice and place then, as well. Yeah, yeah. And they're nice places. But then what's really interesting too is that Phil working at um, art music selling the first TVs in Berkeley. And that was a five minute walk from his apartment. Right? And then an additional 10 minute walk from there is Anthony Boucher's house, who was the editor who bought his first story. Anthony Boucher had these $1 science fiction classes every Thursday. And Marion Zimmer Bradley, Avram Davidson, Ray Nelson, who wrote the story that they live was based off of they all oh, came wow. to these classes at this house and phil could walk to them right it was a 15 minute walk he did the walk and um or i did and um and then uh we were driving when gil and i were together but it was near my hotel so i did the walk by myself just to see it and and the interesting thing about it is is that um, these $1 classes also, you got, when we went to the house, we saw the window where Anthony Boucher sat and created the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which is still going today, mm. which I'm a subscriber mm. to. And, you know, it's like amazing to see this history. So for me, it was like amazing to see it. The only place that I went to, I like had to go touch the house and had like kind of a experience was the Francisco house he was living when he wrote all of his novels in the 50s and all mm. the short stories in the 50s he and cleo lived in that house together and it's down the street from the um pet store where they bought the horse meat uh, <laughs> stuff which is a dojo now by the way and um and that house the francisco house keep in mind that's where the bathroom light switch was that inspired time out of joint and huh. so just or wasn't house, depending on how you look at it right. right um but seeing that house where he wrote eye in the sky and man who jaded and and solar lottery and all the shorts that was the one where i had to like go up and touch it i feel like mm. i had to get the energy from that house and, and it's like one of the coolest moments i had on the tour mm. creepy creepy yeah yeah. Well, have, especially when like, live there. energy in his in his crystals. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Did some Reiki. Right. But it was it was really a powerful experience. Like just seeing all the places and like record store. The second record store he worked at is still a record store. It's a Rasputin Music now. The first one is now a Bank of America. Yeah, uh, that's where he lost his virginity, by the way, in the basement there. <laughs> and uh, you can learn all these things on the video. Nice. Cool. Well, we'll have to. How can people get in touch with you guys, or how can they uh, take a look at this video? It's done. Well, we it's have a uh, we have a YouTube channel, and we have. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're our podcast is available on pretty much pretty much everything everywhere. Uh, we finally figured out. Well, I figured out what we needed to do with Apple Podcasts, but give them money. I mean, it's Apple. You just give them some money and they're fine with everything. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we're PKD heads on, on, on Apple. Yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't use our dickheads moniker because they were, you know, 
the language. They thought we were a penis problem. podcast. Yeah. All right. So I had to make certain uh, changes, but uh, yeah, we're PKD heads here and there, or dickheads podcast everywhere else. Um, I mean, I I like the YouTube channel most for me, just as a you know, I get to do all those all those weird projects, and uh, we love comments. So we're we're always looking for people on Twitter, on Facebook, our Facebook group on YouTube, everywhere else to, to comment. Let us know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, what we can change, what we shouldn't change. We um, have like three books left to change it, so hurry up. <laughs> oh, no, we don't. We have at least 10, but... <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I know Anthony definitely Dude, wanted to hear that. Especially because, well, I think we got a lot of the mainstream novels to do, which... Yeah, I think we have yeah. three uh, three sci-fi novels, and the rest are these uh, the straight literary novels, which Quote are going to be more interesting. Exegesis, those, those ones. All right. Oh, for oh, a good cool. Yeah. Well, one thing I I, want, I do want to add is that um, uh, Anthony and I wrote a, a novel is coming out this fall um, called uh, Nightmare City from Grandma Press. And um, definitely going to need... Nice. Uh, it's um, We've kind of pitched it as the wire in a filmcated and Clive Barker around the staff. Um, wow. And uh, so we definitely cool. could use uh, some eyeballs on that one. And then I have a novel from Clash Books coming out next which I just we just recently announced, so I can talk about it finally. And it's called "The Last Night to Kill Nazis." It's about the last night to kill Nazis. Yeah, is, there a, is there a last night, or is it ongoing? Well, it's about <laughs> the last. That is, day that is a good question. <laughs> You're not allowed to kill oh, Nazis about, after this, right? Right. <laughs> well, it is about World War, the last day of World War II, and and a vampire. So. Okay. Um, but, and uh, that's my first book with national distribution, so I'm super stoked um, to have that out next May. Okay, cool. Mm. Well, we'll put uh, all this uh, now and then Nightmare City. Yeah. Okay. We'll contact. We'll put all these contact stuff in the uh, show notes for you guys. Um, well, you know, thanks for for coming, guys. Thanks for getting in here, get dressing all up in your avatar duds, looking looking fine on this stage. <laughs> uh, you know, for for, for Raggle here it was his very first steps of the metaverse. He didn't even know how to walk, and we we led him onto the stage here. And so, uh, you guys were a real sports to come in here, and uh, it was fun. I like this. Okay, Dick. Well, well, I, well. Uh, if, if you have us back is the only way I'll probably ever do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Just got to be honest. Here? If it's in here, I'll be back if you invite us back. All right, cool. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, everybody, for teleporting into this world cast of Simulation Nation. Whether you're with us in reality, listening to the Fire Apple podcast, or watching on YouTube at The Simulation Nation. And remember to subscribe to our Instagram at The Simulation Nation. Twitter at Simnation VR and our Discord server. Then join us next week as we boldly go where no one has gone before with the USS Valkyrie, which is a Star Trek group that is taking over the metaverse. Till then, Ooh. stay plugged, my friends. Uh, live long and prosper. <laughs>